Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Basim Akhtar. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Avram Elpert, a writer and educator. He is a fellow at the New Institute Hamburg and has taught at Princeton and Rutgers. He has also written for publications including the New York Times and the Washington Post. Today, we are going to discuss his recent book, The Good Enough Life. Avi, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Avi, I'm keen to start by discussing the term good enough in the title of the book. Uh, you seem to suggest that you are not using this term as a negative term, such as just good enough. Instead, you are combining two terms, goodness and enoughness, and making this new term good enough. Help us to understand and unpack the term good enough as you use in this book. Sure. Yeah, I like to start here because it is the, the core of the book. And it is exactly as you say, right, that, that uh, when we hear the word good enough, sometimes we think very understandably, well, it's, it's just good enough, it's adequate, it's, we kind of get by with it. And that's okay. I mean, I do want part of that meaning to come across because I do think we're a bit stressed and overworked and anxious a lot of the time. So I'm okay with a little, um, a little bit of good enough uh, in, in that sense. But as you say, I also want to bring in the multiple meanings of the word. So often we talk about the good life, uh, which also sounds like a, a moral life or, or a decent life. And, and that's a really wonderful thing. Uh, but we're also, we're not just kind of spiritual beings, right? We're also material beings. We also need enoughness. We need enough food and enough shelter and enough care. Um, so the idea of the good enough life is it actually gives us a more robust picture than simply thinking of the good life. And then it adds another meaning as well, which is that um, life is not perfect, right? Even if we live a good life, uh, we're going to have difficulties. We're going to have troubles. We're going to find that People have motivations that are opaque or uh, strange to us, and we're going to have to make a, a world together in spite of all of these things. And so the good enough life is also a recognition of that difficulty and saying, though, that even though we have that difficulty, even though life will always have some imperfection, we can still strive for goodness, for enoughness, uh, and we can bring into our understanding of what a good life is uh, that it will have some flaws and some difficulties, and that will, in fact, enrich us if we work together, if we make a world that makes um, decency and sufficiency for everyone a real possibility. Uh, I can go in also, if you'd like, into the, the background of the term a bit. Please, please. Which is just that uh, there is a psychoanalyst, a British from the 1950s primarily, named Donald Winnicott. Uh, and anyone who writes about good enough, kind of, a, I was obliged to mention Winnicott because he had this idea of the good enough parent, and I, it's a it's a really kind of wonderful uh, essay in which he explores this. And and what Winnicott says is basically, you know, when you're a new parent, you want to be great, you want to be this perfect parent, and you want to provide everything for your children, and you don't want them to suffer, you don't want them to cry, you just want to always be there for them. This is this is very logical. Uh, of course, you want to provide all these things, but you don't realize when you're doing this that you're actually hurting both yourself and your child, right? You're hurting yourself because you're trying to do more than is humanly possible and giving out more to your children than, than you know, you have the energy or the time for. 
but you're also not realizing maybe that this isn't even helping your child because they're not going through the difficult processes of life. They're not learning the creativity and adaptability that they will need as they confront challenges when you're not there later on. And so to bring them up in this kind of perfected or attempted to be perfect space, in fact, takes away from them. And so Winnicott didn't then just say, well, you can't be a perfect parent, so you know, just don't even try. Of course not, right? He says, be good enough. And that I think he doesn't explore the term in the detail that, that I'm interested in, but I think that same sort of idea is there. You're not going to be perfect, but you can still be good and decent and caring, and you can still provide enough material and emotional support for your children to really grow and develop uh, and feel safe and comfortable exploring a, a, an often difficult and often wonderful world. Uh, Similarly, let us try to unpack the term greatness uh, that you use in the book. What do you mean by the term greatness uh, and also our immense fascination for achieving greatness? So let us start with the term greatness. Yeah, thank you. I I like to think about good enoughness as opposed to um, this, this concept of greatness, which is not, it's not like being excellent. When I say, I think sometimes this confusion comes up. I don't mean really having a passion and following your passion and pursuing it and, and really caring about it. Or, you know, like I'm trying to work now increasingly as a as a fiction writer, as a creative writer. And I spend a lot of time, you know, detail after detail, word after word. Is this correct? Uh, I want to be an, uh, an excellent writer. I think that's fine. Um, when I use the term greatness, what I mean is if I take that desire of mine, to really kind of do my craft uh, as well as I can. And I twist it into something where it's not just about me being excellent and pursuing my craft, but me dominating other people through that, right? Me having kind of power over people or me being considered the best at what I do uh, in a kind of pyramid scheme where there's only so many people who can achieve something. It may seem similar, right? It may seem kind of innocent. I'm just, you know, I want the awards or the recognition or, or what have you. But when I participate in that system, and when we collectively create these kinds of systems, what we're doing is uh, creating a world in which there is an increasingly small share of attention, care, enoughness, right, available to only so many people. And the rest of the people wind up kind of at the bottom or in the middle of a pyramid, always trying to reach the top because that's where all the rewards are, that's where the love is, that's where the recognition is. Um, and not seeing that this is not possible, right? Like you cannot have everyone at the top of a pyramid. It just doesn't make sense. And if you have a pyramid where there is incredible rewards at the top, you necessarily need a bottom. And this isn't just me speaking, right? This is Adam Smith speaking. This is hundreds of years of economic theory that tell us if we are going to have uh, an elite, uh, uh, some people at the top of society, it will take hundreds of people at the bottom, if not thousands or millions or billions to make it possible for them to live in a way that they would like. And so what I'm criticizing when I use the term greatness is this kind of hierarchical system, which says that only, you know, that the goal of a life is to reach the top of a pyramid, whatever that pyramid might be, um, and then to uh, design a society that encourages and rewards us to do that, and then to view ourselves as um, part of a human being, right? Part of a a species that is greater than the rest of the world. So not only is it within human society that we make these pyramids, but then it is human society kind of over nature or against nature. And so I explore how this idea of greatness winds up um, spreading through so much of our lives, uh, whether we participate in the game or not. And I think this is also important that 
a lot of people say to me, well, you just don't have to do it. You know, if you, do, you don't, not everyone wants to be at the top of a pyramid. Not everyone wants to be a great athlete or a great writer, or a great musician. You know, a lot of people are happy just to sort of sit back and watch. But it's not so simple as dropping out. You may not pursue being the next uh, Beyonce or, or whatever, or Taylor Swift. Uh, but because that exists, right, because there is all this resources and attention flowing to a particular place, you are still part of a world in which um, we need to create uh, uh, that kind of excess uh, capital, excess reward, excess attention for some people. It means other people are necessarily being left out. Um, there's just not enough to go around when we cram our resources, again, both emotional and material, uh, into limited spaces. So it's not simply about, well, just you know, chill out, relax. You don't need to worry about it. It is part of that, and you can certainly cultivate those virtues and interests in yourself. But it's also thinking about how we make social systems of reward and benefit. The book challenges the existing norms about pursuing and achieving greatness. What are the main issues and shortcomings that you see in the existing systems that claim to enable individuals with talent and courage and skills to rise and achieve greatness? Part of it is simply that the the model doesn't quite... I mean, one way to think about it is to imagine um, uh, like a fast food restaurant, right? And you can say uh, in the in the way we sort of think about the world now... Look, there's 20 people working at this fast food restaurant, and uh, one person is the manager. And anyone who has enough skill and talent and, and wherewithal to kind of push through can someday become the manager. And that manager can then sort of show their skills, and then maybe they can go on to another job or so on and so forth. But there's a simple math here. There are 20 people working there, and there is only one manager. So if all 20 people in this place are diligent, hardworking, caring, committed people, which is the, what we should hope in a society that actually we want people to all have these virtues and capacities, 19 of them will be left out in, in this process. I mean, it just, it just doesn't add up. And so that, that's a very small example, but I think listeners can probably understand how this relates to so many other fields and places. And the idea is that basically what we're saying is not that we want everyone to cultivate their virtues and their skills and their talents and, and what they can be good at and what they can embody in the world, but actually that we are trying to sort out who is going to be lucky enough to rise to the top of whatever kind of uh, system we've, we've created. Um, they may be lucky in terms of they were in the right place at the right time. They may have certain skills that are more useful in particular places than other people, um, but we are kind of pushing aside and neglecting and, and forgetting the, the skills and talents of all these other people. And one of the key quotes for me as I was working through this book comes from a man named Michael Young, a British uh, sociologist. And um, Young wrote a book that people may know in 1958 called The Rise of the Meritocracy. And uh, the book is a satire. Uh, it's where the word meritocracy comes from, but it you know people sometimes forget that meritocracy in its origin is a satirical term for basically what will replace the aristocracy. Uh, so we're not, we're not um, overcoming an aristocratic or hierarchical world. We're just replacing it with something else. And Young says in his book, in his satire of the rise of the meritocracy, he has a group that is kind of fighting against it. And they write what they call the Chelsea Manifesto. And in it, they say something like, they want to make a world where everyone is capable of cultivating the talents, the virtues, the capacities that they have by virtue of being human um, and living their life to the fullest. 
and that this is the the goal that they're trying to get. It's not about a ocracy, right? It's not about a power structure. Uh, it's about the kind of things that we want to say is possible in a human life and the kind of virtues we want to extend in a human life. And I don't think, I think sometimes people say to me, well, it's a bit naive to imagine this. You know, when you really get into the dark side of human nature, everyone is, you know, terrible in various ways. And that's true. And that's what the good enough life means, right? We are flawed. We are deeply flawed and we have passions and motivations that, that come from places that we may not want. Um, but to create a world in which you're always punished for that, or to create a world in which only some people are able to really find what is what is good and decent in them and, and kind of work through what is problematic or frustrating in them uh, is to relegate so many of our possibilities and, and our capacities to, to the dustbin of history. And, and I want to rethink that. I want to sort of ask, why is it that we're so concerned with finding the lucky, talented few and not with cultivating uh, the wonderful, complex many? This nicely brings us to my next question. Earlier in our conversation, you have also alluded to this, that life is flawed and there are some suffering and tragedy and shortcoming that is always there in the life. Now, in the book and in your presentations, you emphasize that there are two ways to respond to the fact that life is flawed. Talk to us about those two ways and then you build your your, your hypothesis on and ideas and the model on, on those two responses. So what are the two ways? Yeah, so the way I, I mean, it's a bit schematic, right? Nothing is ever quite so clean. But the basic idea is that um, there is the greatness model. And what the greatness model says is, yes, we know. Like, life is flawed. And yes, we know that in the pursuit of greatness, bad things will happen to good people. But what we can do is we can build a system that rewards the best and finds the best and brings them to the top. And so that can be uh, the best tech entrepreneurs, the best chefs, the best athletes, the best everything. And we're going to give them everything they need, all the resources, all the capacities. We're going to pump it into them. And then they're going to come up with the creations and the inventions that will trickle down to the rest of us, right? So you may not be Taylor Swift, but you get to hear her perform. You may not be uh, um, uh, Ronaldo, but you get to watch him play. You, you may not be Elon Musk, but you get to use Twitter, maybe. I mean, it might be broken by the time this, this airs. Um, that's the idea, right? The idea is that if we kind of give enough to the, the kind of best among us, then it, it will trickle down. And I think as the, the Elon Musk example shows, um, it doesn't quite work out when, when we do it this way. But you don't need, I mean, they could all be wonderful, right? It, you don't need for there to be the case that there is a kind of Musk-like character who's, who's, um, has, his, 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 has his difficulties very public. Um, but you can just see in the system already that right as everyone is kind of striving to be or, or watches to be this again, like we talked about before, the Taylor Swift or the Ronaldo or whoever it might be, you are creating a system in which most people will not become that famous musician and most people will not become that, that famous athlete. And because we kind of push in society uh, a kind of narrative about success that suggests that this is really what you should try to do, you should try to be the best in, in whatever you're doing, um, we wind up creating a system where we have this, yeah, this kind of trickle down logic. Only some people get the best and then what's meant to come down to the rest of us. But what you wind up finding in the world when we look around it, I think quite obviously, and I go through some of these statistics in the book, they should probably be updated. It's they're a couple of years old now, but you know, there's about 3 billion people living in poverty. I mean, that, that alone, I think sort of tells us that the model that, that we're living with is, is pretty insane. There is, I don't know, something like um, 
I can't remember the exact numbers now, but it's something like $70 trillion in, in wealth that's kind of slushing around. And you can't just divide that up because it's it's held in property, it's held in stocks. It's not like a simple kind of division problem, but there is enough that every adult could have about 70,000 US uh, dollars a year. Um, the fact that this is all kind of in these few hands, the fact that this is not being distributed or spread around suggests to us that we have a, a problem with this model. We have a problem where people are dying of hunger, people are dying of starvation, so, so on and, and so forth, um, that this, this model can never address. Because all it can say is, well, we can keep raising up the people at the top and we can keep dropping down more and more, but it just never happens. And if it were going to happen, it would have happened already, right? There's nothing to stop this. And part of that is also because when you have so much concentration of wealth, you also have concentration of power. Uh, and so people who have all these resources tend to find ways that they get to, to keep them. Um, what I'm suggesting with the good enough model is not to abandon talent or quality or skill or excellence or any of the things that we, we've mentioned before, but in fact, to enable everyone to pursue them. Right? So it's it's not, I think sometimes when people hear the good enough life, what they think is, oh, we're just going to get rid of any kind of talent. No, no, it's quite the opposite. We're actually going to bring out the talent of point. Eight, nine, I don't know what we're up to now, billion people um, and all the kind of virtues and capacities that they can bring to the world, which are currently excluded, because what we do is only try to find the best, move them up the top of the ladder, uh, let them sort it out. Instead, we're going to try to find ways to work together. Uh, and this is part of the, just one last point on this is that the only way in which I do want to kind of convey an, a good enough in the, in the kind of um, more relaxed sense of the term, right? You know, this is good enough. It's just that we wouldn't have to work as hard, right? The models are there. The numbers are there. When people do these kinds of uh, experiments, you can work a three, four day week if everyone is involved. But if it's about the competition and if it's about the few people getting the most resources, then everyone is kind of getting pushed to either work too much um, or to kind of get excluded from the, the labor market or, or the, the you know, kind of common pool of resources in some way. So my hope is that a good enough life, a good enough model is, again, one in which we do have lots of ways to explore what we're good at, uh, but also not everyone is having to scramble and stress and, and be anxious all the time. Now let us look at this from a different perspective. So people, and you have mentioned a few names, Elon Musk, Taylor Swift, and then we can talk about other leaders as well who have actually reached greatness based on their efforts, based on their skills. They have reached this greatness because they have worked very hard. And some of these leaders, not the ones that we have mentioned, but there are many others who have made real difference uh, to the lives of millions of people. So how do you see people emerging and then rising to this greatness based on their hard work, based on their effort? How do you see those achievements? Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a few things to, to say about it. One, simply being, of course, right? Like there are a lot of good people who have done well in, in the world that we live in. And I have no interest to deny that. And there are a lot of people who've come from very difficult circumstances and been able to have a kind of upward mobility story, um, including people, you know, in my own my own family, my own background, that I was kind of born into the uh, suburban American middle class because generations back, people had gone through this kind of immigrant narrative story and risen to a certain level, and then I am the beneficiary of. Um, and so I don't, in any case, want to deny or, or, or 
you know, speak down to this or the, the virtues that, you know, people really do struggle through this and, and be, are able then to bequeath on uh, to their family something else. And it is in many ways a, a wonderful thing. You know, however, right, there's this, this part of me that thinks, you know, why? Like, why did generations of, uh, you know, Eastern European immigrants in the United States have to suffer so that, you know, 100 years later, their, their great-grandson could have a, the decent life that they couldn't have? Why couldn't they have it then? Right, and why are there still so many people? Again, billions of people living in these unfair and, and unequal conditions. You know, why can't we try to make it such that it's not simply about what might happen in the future or a lucky few who break through, but actually, this is the goal of society: is for everyone to be able to experience this. And sometimes I think people think, well, but those people aren't working hard enough, and we just know that's not true. I mean, there's so many people working so hard all the time, including the generations of my, my family back, uh, who worked extremely hard and were not rewarded or suffered through kind of forms of discrimination. Some of that is, some of that is racism, some of that is nationalism, some of that is various forms of uh, sexism, um, but also some of that is just the structure. It's a pyramid structure where it is designed such that some people are doing a kind of work and getting a kind of remuneration, which is uh, not sufficient for the, a decent life. And so, again, it's not to deny the, the virtues of, of hard work. Um, it's really to sort of say, let's actually reward it uh, where it is and, and as it appears and, and, um, and find that, that, you know, when everyone is kind of giving something, the, the, I say I don't want to deny the virtue of hard work, but I also don't want to overemphasize it, right? I don't want to say too much, you know, uh, everyone should be kind of giving their life over to work. I do actually think there are virtues beyond the labor that we do. And that has to do with family and with care and with love and with the pursuit of, of joy and uh, community and, and these sorts of things. So when I say hard work, I, I kind of wanted to embrace the, the fullness of a life that, that Michael Young uh, spoke about. Um, but I do also, you know, I, I think, I don't know if this is where your, your question is coming from, but um, there are also certainly people, the kind of uh, Gandhis of the world or the Martin Luther Kings of the world who have their own complexities as, as well that we can talk about. But, um, you know, they rise through the ranks to really lead these movements that that transform lives. And, you know, again, it's in no way to deny the, the wonder of that, the accomplishments that that they've made. Uh, it is simply to question, right, why is it that we're trying to build a world where someone has to do so much in order for everyone else to live a, a decent life? That doesn't make sense. Um, and it doesn't make sense also because it's not entirely accurate, right? So then when you look at the history of the, uh, the which I know a bit better, say the uh, civil rights movement or the black liberation movement in the United States, uh, it's true that King is a, a leader but it's also true when you kind of read into the histories that uh, it's everyday people organizing, um, getting out there, talking to their neighbors. Um, they're the ones doing the kind of groundwork and then being forgotten a little bit. And so there's some interesting history. There's one by a man named Charles Payne. Um, uh, I've got the light of freedom. Uh, but kind of getting into the details about how, you know, the leader figure is the one that the media crystallizes on or, or the historians sometimes kind of look at. But when you go into it, King himself is only possible because everybody else had been working for this for so long because there had been women on the ground, neighbors on the ground, children on the ground, going to meetings, getting to know each other, creating the networks that would make it possible that once a, a kind of leader was able to galvanize them, um, certainly mattered. 
But also there were women in the movement, women like Ella Baker, Septima Clark, who are well known in the United States or decently known in the United States, but maybe don't have the same reputation as King, but were very critical of someone like him, King or Malcolm X. And they sort of said, look, we don't want this one leader. We actually, we've always been a movement. We want to stay a people's movement. And when we have one leader, it it uh, means that we're so kind of stuck on that person that the movement can falter when that leader goes. And you do see this some, right? When there are assassination, uh, assassinations of leaders, the kind of push of the movement does start to, to falter a little bit. Uh, it continues in various ways, but at least the media coverage, right, starts to kind of disperse or the kind of sense of power that you've gained. So there are issues that, that, that come up in complex ways with this. None of it, again, is to deny like how amazing the, these people are um, or to say that there's anything wrong with them or to say that people today who are working so hard to kind of lead social movements, to create more just, more equal societies, um, it's just, to, again, to sort of say the goal of that is not for them to become great. It's not for them to be recognized by the history books. The goal of it is for society to be a better place uh, and for everyone to kind of have these these decent and, and caring lives. Uh, and so that's that's more the, the, the focus of the book and, and the point of the argument I want to make. One line uh, that I read in your book and I, I stopped there and I kept thinking, and that line is that you are saying that we are stuck with this existing system. We have not been able to create a better system that provides more equality and more justice and equal opportunities because we have not tried this. Please expand on that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I simply I simply want to suggest that um, there are lots of examples in, in history, right, where people have, have tried in various ways to make uh, yeah, more equal, more just societies. Uh, but the idea, the kind of normative ideal, um, which is not, uh, which is to say, you know, what is our kind of ethical goal or moral goal of, of what we're attempting to accomplish, um, that it would be focused on, right, the decency of the, the person, the moral goodness, the, the symbolic sense of who we are, that sufficiency would be part of this, but also that imperfection would be part of it, right? That we're not actually striving for uh, this kind of communist ideal, let's say, of a completely equal society, a completely classless society. Um, we might find in some future that some humans can can come up with whatever, and that's wonderful. I have no mean to exclude the future. Uh, but that the goal that we're looking for now is one that in some sense embraces a certain level of, of difficulty, a certain level of, of difference, a certain level of needing to work through the complexities of what humans can do and, and contribute and how the conflicts between them are somewhat inevitable, um, but that we don't then give in. We don't then become cynical. We don't then sort of say, well, then I guess we're going to need the, you know, the democracy that we know or the capitalism we know is the best system we have by no means, right? It's to sort of say, let's keep going and pushing. I don't mean, I, I can't exactly remember the sentence you refer to, but I don't mean to say that I've come up with something that no one's ever thought of before, but only, you know, kind of building on this, this progress and this history and the other people who've thought about this before me and trying to articulate it again. This goodness and enoughness idea that you discuss in the book, you look at this idea then through various lenses. You look at this through uh, individuals' lens. You look at this, uh, that what it means for our relationship. You look at it, what it means for our society. You even look at it, what it means for our planet. So g give us briefly this summary that this goodness and enoughness, how does it operate on these different levels? Yeah, so... so uh... 
there are ways in which it's similar across the levels and there's ways in which it you know sort of changes subtly as we go but you know for yourself uh, at some level it's about embracing to begin with your own imperfections right your own sense that um you will never have perfect knowledge you will never have the perfect job that matches everything about who you thought you could be you'll never fully know yourself right you always have some kind of and this is a good thing in a way, right? We, we're sort of always evolving and changing and, and realizing that we're more complicated and we have new insights into who we are. And these are all kind of wonderful parts of ourselves, but ones that we need to acknowledge because they can also be difficult to understand and work through. And that in that process, we should be good enough to ourselves, right? We should uh, be caring and, and uh, concerning for ourselves and making sure that we have a sufficient amount. Uh, but never asking too much, right? And sort of never saying, I deserve the, the most, I deserve the best, I deserve to dominate over others. Uh, but really thinking about how can I be a good enough part of a good enough world? How can I so arrange my actions and my thoughts and my understanding such that I can contribute to a world in which I have a decent, sufficient, caring life as and as others do? And so that sort of leads me into this next part of the book, which is about our relationships and what I'm thinking about in, in our relationships is that, again, you know, when I, what I say in the book is I was writing this and people would say to me, you know, you're writing this good enough life. Like, does that mean you think, you know, you only have a good enough uh, best friend or a good enough wife? Like, is it she, you know, they just could have not adequate. <laughs> then, no, no, it's quite, it's quite the opposite. Like, I, I think I'm so blessed because I have good enough people in my lives. Right? I have people who are decent and they're caring uh, and they're really uh, meaning. We provide meaning and, and, and support for each other. And we really are enough for each other. And we're there when we need each other. Uh, but we also understand each other's flaws. Uh, when when I'm with my partner or with my friends, uh, it is really a situation in which it's not that I do everything right all the time or they do everything right all the time, but we really um, understand each other and understand the kind of limitations or difficulties. We were just uh, visiting some friends last week and you know, one of us would want to do one thing and someone would want to do something else and someone would be hungry and someone would be tired. And, you know, we're adults, but basically we're just big children with our various uh, needs and difficulties. And what makes our friendships work, again, it's not just that they're perfect or that we all want the same thing at the, all, at the same time, but actually that we are there for each other through the various little bits of, of being alive and that this is very much what relationships are about and what, what parenting is about and what uh, friendship is about. And that, in fact, one of the wonderful things about friendship is that it discloses to us, like it kind of tells us a certain truth of the universe. It tells us that um, we can have these meaningful, deep, profound uh, relationships with people with whom we are not perfectly aligned. That this, you know, that belonging or that being together is not about perfection or, or full identity, but about working through like, the complexities and finding the meaning and, and finding the joy in that, that process. Um, so that's sort of, sort of going through the, the relationship part of thing and then kind of realizing, I mean, you know, the book kind of performs it as a realization, although I, I knew this, of course, as I was writing that maybe you, you try this. Okay. So you're going to have this plan to be a good enough part of a good enough society and you're not going to ask too much of other people and you're not going to demand too much for yourself, but you're going to be decent and caring and ask others to provide that for you and give that back to others. And then, you know, you really want to talk to people about this, but 
none of your friends are available because they're all working too much and they really think this is a cute idea, but you know, it's completely out of touch with modern society in the world and everything is fast paced. And if they don't do all these things for their children and be the best parent they can be, then their child's going to fall behind in society and they're not going to have enough money to live on and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what is the point of this, you know, nice kind of sounding good enough life in, in the modern world. And so then it's to say, look, this isn't in, in ways, some ways this is a book that is, a bit of self-help, I hope. I hope people can read it and, and kind of find some values and virtues for themselves, but also realizing that you can't just help yourself, right? You, self-help is an insufficient category because you are a social being, because you are a political being, because the nature of being human is that you are caught up in webs of relationships, you know, kind of beyond what you immediately control. And so then you do have to entangle with the political ramifications of this. If you really want a world that is decent and caring for for as many living beings as possible, then this becomes a political question. And so what are the forms of of life? What are the forms of society that enable this? Um, And I come down on, you know, kind of I think through some of the virtues and the complications of uh, capitalism, social democracy, democratic socialism. And I I come down with a kind of democratic socialist position, uh, which basically says this is the, historically, this, this was the movement that, was so con- most concerned um, with providing decency and sufficiency for everyone and not you know, kind of full communism, not kind of imagining that everything will kind of uh, be utop- utopic in the end, um, but that we can have some difficulties and some differences. And, you know, if we live in a society that is filled with workers' cooperatives, um, maybe the person who's the manager makes twice as much as the person who pa- makes the packages or three times. I mean, and not that much more right and if you sometimes i think people say to me but you know why would you even try to be the manager then you know what why, why you know where's the motivation where's the kind of bringing out the the best in us um and i i do think one thing i wish i'd gotten more into in the book is this this question but you know human motivation is not something that exists abstractly from the society in in which we live and if there is a motivation to make a lot of money if there's a, a world in which you sort of see well, if I have this amount of capital, I'll be able to do these things. And if I don't, I might wind up in a precarious position. I might not have enough. I may not be able to feed my family or my uh, myself, or you know, I may not be able to take care of my parents as they age. Then it's going to make a lot of sense for you to try to make a lot of money. That that's sort of the logic built into our society. And to you know, to be wealthy, it's always important as a relative idea. To be wealthy means to have more purchasing power than someone else. There's no kind of abstract number that names it. And so you're then trying to trying to live in a world where you are able to take care of your parents in old age or buy a home that is able to have a kind of flat for them or something like this. Um, and to do that means to have to make a lot more money than other people because that's there's only so many resources and that's how they go around. If you live in a world where that is not the case, right, where there is good socialized care, where there is enough to kind of go around to make sure that everyone is cared for through their lifespan – um, not without their own contribution, not without their own offering, whatever that might be. Again, it doesn't have to be monetary value. It could be their care. It could be your concern. It could be your virtues, your talents, etc. cetera. Um, but if you live in a world where that's valued, then you don't need to make as much money. You don't have to have that motivation, right? Money is a way of getting at other things. It's not a thing in itself. Um, and so if you can get at those other things by virtue of just being a decent, caring person. And I know full well, I know full well the complexity and the difficulty historically and that a lot of attempts to make the world a better place have gone very bad. And none of this is is to deny that this is a a difficult process. But that's the point, 
right? But the point is that we should go through this difficult process, and this is a goal worth having. So I know this might be the more controversial chapter in the book, but I, I really sort of want it to be an outgrowth of the other chapters, right? This is the kind of world that would enable us to live these good enough lives. Um, and then, right, because I'm writing now uh, in, in a moment of uh, ecological catastrophe, which is surrounding all of us quite constantly, um, and I think even the doubters and the skeptics can no longer do so. I mean, I think around the world, we're feeling, even in supposedly safe places, Northern Europe or, or you know, Canada or Northern uh, United States, um, you're seeing fires, you're seeing floods, right? This is a really tough situation. So we cannot avoid the fact that our good enough lives have to be built within a natural environment. And one of the problems I think that we've had to, to understand this is that we sometimes think... Uh, well, the world is massive, right? The world is great. The world is endless. Like it doesn't, it's conceptually difficult where you burn the fuel. And so it goes, it, of course, it just goes out into the universe, right? No. So to really understand that the world itself is good enough, right? That it is not this thing that we can just keep pumping resources out of or putting junk back into, um, but that it is decent, it is sufficient. It is it has a carrying capacity for all the humans that, that currently have it, and, and and then also billions and billions and billions of other life forms that we share this planet with, and that are necessary to its maintenance and its ecosystems. Um, it, that is mir miraculous. That is amazing. That is good, um, and it can provide enough. But it is not perfect. Uh, it cannot take more than than. Um, than it can absorb, and we cannot take more from it than it has to give, right? And so we currently take about 1.7 Earths every year, which is to say the Earth has renewable resources and is able to reproduce, you know, water and wood and uh, minerals and so forth. Uh, but at some point, you are extracting more than the Earth is able to regenerate. And so if you're taking 1.7 Earths, eventually, you know, you run out of Earth. And this is a really bad thing, uh, because then it can't sustain life and so forth. So, so it's this kind of shift our understanding of what this natural world is and, and how we relate to it. Um, without trying to, again, you know, there's a beautiful model, Kate Raworth in the UK worked out called the kind of donut economics and people have various criticisms of this, but what I like about it is it's sort of, if you can imagine a donut with a hole in the center, uh, and and the bottom the bottom of the dole is kind of a social collapse, right? So that we're not providing enough for each other, and we're not having sufficient resources. And the top is a kind of environmental limit. Uh, the kind of outer edge of the donut is a, a environmental limit, and beyond that, right, the environment collapses. And so our goal is to kind of get into that band, right? We have a sufficient amount of resources to take care of everybody and ensure that people have energy and clothing and food and so forth and medical care. And so. uh, but we're not taking so much that we're breaking out of that top boundary. And that's a very difficult thing to do. But I think the donut is a nice way of thinking about, again, the difficulty of a good enough life, but, but one that is worth pursuing and living. Many philosophers and many spiritual traditions uh, have suggested similar changes. They have suggested similar ideas. But usually the challenge, the real challenge is when you try to implement these changes, when you try to implement these models and these theories. And I mean, how can you bring this change if the institutions that you have to build and develop will be managed by the same human beings that we all are trying to change? Because if the individuals don't change, the society won't change. So how do you see that dimensions of such ideals? Yeah, no, it's, that's, the, that's the big question, right? And I, I, I agree and I appreciate what you, you 
preface this by saying, right, which is that, again, the ideas that I'm kind of discussing here, they're not new, right? There are things that you find in Buddhism and Christianity and most of the, the world's religions really are, are preaching this, right? We should be decent to each other. We should care for each other. We should provide enough for each other. And, you know, we live with a certain humility under a universe, whether that's God or, or gods or, or just a kind of system of worlds that is beyond our control. And so we don't have this kind of perfection within that, uh, but we can still achieve kind of goodness and well-being within it. And, and that is this longstanding human goal. And, and I, you know, I like to think that there's a reason that this keeps coming up through these different traditions and ways of thinking, which is that it is something that we should really strive for. Um, as you said, it's, I, you know, I don't have, I wish I had like a nice clean, okay, we just do this tomorrow and, and then everything will be fine. What I think I can do as a, as a writer, as a kind of uh, philosopher type, you know, I can look at what are our ethics, what are the morals, what are the ways in which we understand our kind of purpose in the world, and I can continue to kind of push that forward. Um, and I can try then also to rely on my colleagues and the people who work hard on this in the social sciences, the economists, political economists, sociologists, and say, look, if you get into the details, there actually are some pretty good models. There are models for how to make worker cooperatives. There are models for how to make more participatory government, right? So that there is more not just the elected representatives, but there are ways to involve local councils uh, through lotteries, through assemblies, through you know these increasingly innovative methods. And um, how do we kind of get more people involved in the in the political process? Uh, there are ways of of uh, innovating our technologies and our resource use that is both supply side and demand side to change these things. So a lot of these things do exist. Uh, the issue is kind of the traction. Um, and when you have very powerful companies, when you have really concentrated wealth in, in few hands, or you have concentrated interests uh, in a few hands, and sometimes it is, you know, it's not just the oil company that, that is stopping us from acting on climate change. It, it is also a kind of difficulty from people who work in the industry who may not make that much money, right? Who may kind of have a not great job working uh, in a mine or a coal mine somewhere or something like this, but that is the job they have, right? And they don't want to have that job lost because they don't know what's coming next. And so there is a lot of work that's been done on a just transition, on a transition that concerns itself both with, you know, whom resources have been taken from in the past, who have lost land in the past and so forth, but also with the, the contemporary workers, uh, and so that they need not worry or oppose changes because they know that something good is going to come on the other side. So I think part of this is really sort of saying there is um, a desire to live a more decent and, and caring life. Uh, this is what most people want. Um, and there are methods to get there. And we should just, I, we have nothing to do but to keep advocating them, organizing for them, getting together, talking about them, preaching them, whatever it is that we can do to kind of help this come into being. And then whenever we can in our own lives, it's not sufficient, but it's something, right? In our own lives, can we make decisions that help these things along, right? Can we act in such a way, uh, you know, if I'm, I, it doesn't happen so much, right? But if I'm invited to do a panel, um, I try to make sure that there's always someone on that panel who is not famous, right? Or someone who is kind of an adjunct or hasn't gotten recognition. I, this is this is in some sense nothing, right? It's it's not going to change the world. It's not going to stop climate change, right? But it's just a way of sort of recognizing, okay, every time we do something like this, it shouldn't just be about gathering the people who already have recognition. We should also try to kind of bring in um, someone who we know is like really virtuous and talented and caring 
um, but who hasn't, for whatever reason, gotten that kind of recognition. And so whatever it is in, in your own life or someone's life that enables them to sort of think, well, what can I do? What, how can I kind of make a world that isn't oriented just around greatness, but about kind of everyone's kind of interests and capacities and, and virtues? And how can I be more decent and caring and making sure that everyone has enough um, you know, that, that won't solve our problems, but it's a chip, you know, it's a little kind of dent along the way. One point that you make about uh, the life that is uh, full of goodness and enoughness is that uh, that life should have meaning. How does a life with goodness and enoughness achieve uh, meanings? So it's uh, one in, in the sense just that we are... Um, we are both again kind of material and we can call it spiritual or symbolic or, or whatever, however you, you think about it kind of creatures, right? We are creatures who seek uh, both to have a, a, a rich life of, of the mind, of the soul or, or a sense of well-being uh, and also who need our, our kind of um, uh, material needs met, right? This is just kind of what it, part of what it is to be a human being. And so Part of that means that the meaning in a human life uh, is is fulfilled in some sense simply by that, simply right by being able to live a life of, of virtue, decency, care, and a life in which your uh, needs are, are met or you're able to meet your needs through your, your work or through your community engagement. Um, that provides some sort of sense of purpose and, and going forth. But it's also to say that in a greatness-oriented system, in a system where you're really kind of struggling to make your way to the top of a competitive hierarchy, you may find that although your passions or interests uh, lie in um, nursing, in, in taking care of other people, that that isn't going to get you to the kind of uh, level of um, uh, material well-being that our society makes meaningful, right? That makes kind of means that you can live a life where, you, again, you can care for various people in various ways. And so, you know, your parents, your kids and yourself and so forth, uh, your, your community. And so you wind up not pursuing the thing that gave you meaning, this kind of nursing job where you were really, you liked working with sick people and caring for them. You wind up trying to be a brain surgeon, which you hate doing, but pays you a lot of money, right? And so you, you kind of lose the kind of path of purpose in your life. You stay close to it. Maybe it's not so necessarily terrible, but you wind up doing something that isn't really what you wanted to do because it is more prestigious or pays better or, or something like this. And so, again, it's, it's just about kind of freeing up the strictures such that we're not saying, okay, maybe brain surgeons make a little more in our good enough society than, than uh, registered nurses do, uh, but not so much more uh, that you would give up the thing that you care about in order to to have that other reward, so that that's kind of the idea that we would we would um, make it such that the thing that is meaningful for you, again, it's only I, I I temper that a little bit just with this idea that it will be good enough, right? You are not going to find. I don't think there's such a thing as like the perfect job for you, or that like your 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 soul is linked to the idea of being a nurse, or your soul is linked to the idea of being a carpenter or to being a doctor, whatever it is, it, it, you have various possibilities and dispositions and whatever you choose, you're going to lose out on something else. And so we kind of have to also keep that in mind that there is some kind of um, uh, imperfection in, in no matter what we choose, but that there's some things that'll call us a little more or that'll be a little more meaningful. Or, um, and again, it may also be the case that a society needs a lot of, like a lot of electricians are needed right now 
to help in the climate transition. Um, and so you may not find that you are like suited or passionate about being electrician, but you may find that you are suited and passionate for keeping the world from catching on fire or drowning in a flood. And so that calls you in some other way. So even if it isn't like a vocational, right, it might just be something, well, I want to be part of a world that is um, still a world, right, that is, is not a hothouse. And so I'm going to pursue uh, electrician as something that I'm going to do because I know that that can, can make a slightly better place. The question that I'm about to ask uh, now, I'm sure you have come across this question. The book is very interesting read. You read it. It is structured very well. Very interesting reading. But at times you feel that you are reading a philosophy book. Then at time you feel that, oh, it is guiding me to improve my life. Is this a self-help book? And then at times you feel that, okay, Avi is trying to give us some uh, suggestions at, at societal level. So maybe it's a policy recommendation book. So Avi, help me uh, to understand that, uh, that where is the focus of the book? Yeah. I mean, if it weren't uh, so pretentious, I would call it a world help book. Uh, <laughs> this idea that it's, that, that I do kind of care about the self-help aspect of it. Um, and I do care about the kind of philosophical side of it, but that if we just pursue kind of what we're interested in philosophically, and then we kind of hit a point where we realize, okay, I'm interested in a decent caring world where people kind of live with moderation and tolerance and not too much. Um, I can just go pursue that on my own, but then you realize, well, that doesn't actually add up to, it's not possible or it's not meaningful or you're, you're, you're not able to really kind of participate in, in broader communities and ways of life, then there's a kind of limit to your individual pursuits. And so you do have to engage with the social. So the point of the book is somewhat to be a bit genre defying. Uh, which is a risk and and probably part of why it's only itself a good enough book, right? Like it's not perfect. You know, if you're a philosopher, you're probably nitpicking parts of it. And if you're an economist, you're going to nitpick other parts of it. And you should, right? Because I, I am more a philosopher than an economist. I've done my best to engage with these various fields. Uh, but of course, I don't know everything about them. I'm trying to kind of compile a, a way of understanding um, contemporary life in, in many places in, in the world uh, that required me as I kind of thought it through to go into all these different places. And so I sort of followed the idea. And then I found people in these different places who were engaging the idea from different angles. And I did my best to uh, represent those positions and those parts of it. But I do find often people say to me, you know, oh, I thought this was a self-help book. I got kind of bored around chapter three, or I thought Actually, you told me this is more of a kind of like political book, but there was all this stuff about relationships, like what's going on here. And my hope is that readers, um, even if you have that initial kind of, oh, this isn't what I thought it was, you push through, right? And you sort of say, okay, this isn't what I thought it was, but maybe there's a reason why. Uh, and maybe I can still take something from this, even though it's not offering me exactly what I wanted. So that was my hope, was that I could kind of bring you in with a self-help book, but help. But then, you know, as I went through my myself, I sort of realized, okay, but this isn't, this isn't sufficient. It can't just be self-help. We do have to engage these kind of broader circles. So I hope readers are willing to come with me on that journey. And as you read through these various strands that are there in the book and presented very well, there is one point where you actually question yourself that should you be using the word I or should you be using the word we? Is there a community out there whom you are trying to address or inform? Or is this about individual where you should use the word I? So so, so this challenge that I believe that as an author you faced while you were writing this book, that should I be using I or should I be using we? Yes. No, and, and I... I 
still struggle with this in, in a way because I do think as I talk to people from, you know, at some level, I say this because, look, I, I come from a particular, you know, I'm, I'm a white male, mostly middle class living in the United States most of my life. I, I don't live there now, but, you know, I, I have a particular perspective and position and I don't want to assume that everyone kind of agrees with me or has the same life experience. Uh, at the same time, I am a I am a bit of a, what I call a good enough universalist, right? It's it's not that everyone uh, universalism meaning that um, everyone has the exact same ethics or the exact same norms, but that we have a kind of shared set of concerns, right, around decency, around care, around well-being, um, that do transcend our identity markers, or at least move between them in in interesting ways. And so I don't want to speak on behalf of other people. I don't want to assume I know other people's experiences. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But but I do think that we are part of a shared world. And in that shared world, we do have some shared values. And I do want to try to communicate that. And so some of that is also just me doing as much research as I can and you know, learning other cultures, learning other religions, um, living in other places, talking to people from other places, trying to absorb their experiences and then not speaking for them, but kind of trying to speak with them, uh, understand where they're coming from and building that into my own experience because we do share a world. And if I experience something in some way and you experience it in another way, neither of us has the complete experience of that thing. But by talking to each other, by communicating with each other, we can begin to, to build and develop that. So that was the hope of the book. And that's why it's a bit of a, well, this is me and this is my position, but I hope that I do want it to connect with, with other people and, and be part of something meaningful for, for all of us. Avi, we are discussing your book, The Good Enough Life. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is much more in the book. However, is there anything else that you think we should touch upon before we close this discussion? I had one one thought earlier. We were talking about meaning in in life, and um, I there was a survey done in uh, in Britain in the nineteen forties, sort of late forties, post war, and um, they asked these group of young uh, students, you know, would you rather uh, have a meaningful job that doesn't pay very well, or a meaningless job that pays very well? And I think it's something like you know. 80% of the students say, 90% of the students say, I would like to have a meaningful job and I don't care what it pays. And there's a social context, right? This is the beginning of social democracy in England and people are not having to think as much about will their basic needs be met. There's a sort of social contract starting to be in place. And so they can really think about you know, who they are and who they want to be and, and morality is kind of foregrounded and well-being and so forth. I did this question I, when I was teaching at Princeton University. I asked my students this, very unscientific, non-statistical experiment. I just asked 24 students, um, but I got exactly the opposite. I had two students, just two, who said they wanted to have a meaningful life um, and not be paid very much, and everyone else said they wanted to be paid a lot. And I said, guys, like, I don't really understand this. I mean, t explain to me you know, what is, is going on here? Don't you care about having, and what was interesting to me was their response was, well, look, if I make a million dollars a year, of course I'm going to have a meaningful life. Like the idea that there could be some gap, you know, that money and meaning had become one thing in their, in their minds. Um, and that to me was, I think, a lot of what I wanted to, to challenge with this book and, and that I couldn't, again, why this book is not simply about what they think, but also the world that they see. 
because I understand where they're coming from, right? When you live in the United States and you kind of live in this context where uh, money matters so much, uh, of course you're going to think that these these things are uh, uh, intrinsically linked as opposed to actually delinked as they would have felt to a British student at that time. So I had to, I wanted to work through that social context and that, and that meaningful context. And I, one of the students though, who I, I think about sometimes who said that they, they wanted the meaningful life. And I said, well, what would you like to be? And he said, a librarian. And, you know, I think sometimes people think, you know, if you go to Princeton university or one of these kind of Ivy league schools or Oxford, Cambridge or Trinity, you know, you're kind of thinking, well, you're you're on an upwardly mobile path, and so you know you want to go into some other place. Uh, and of course, you don't want to just have a job like a librarian. No, you you would just you don't need to go to Oxbridge to do that. Um, and I think that the kind of world that I'm struggling for, or jo- trying to join others and struggling for, is one in which you go anywhere you go, and and you you know if you go to a place like that, you go because you are interested in the life of the mind. And it's not about making money. It's not about joining the elite. It really is, you know, you're excited about books and you want to be a librarian. And so you go to university because that's kind of a logical part of that experience. And if you want to leave one of these elite schools and and be a postman or be a carpenter or be a plumber, I think that, that that's the kind of world I really want to imagine where there's much more of this kind of crossing between the different ways of life. Uh, and we are all not thinking about an elite or, or something special, but a kind of communal uh, well-being. Um, in which we are all encouraged to really develop what we are excited about, what we're interested in, and and being able to ensure that no matter what we do, as long as we are contributing in some meaningful sense to our communities, to our worlds, uh, we will be taken care of. We will have the opportunity to take care of others, uh, and we will live in this, this shared, decent, caring space. Dr. Avram Albert, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Asim, thank you so much. These are really wonderful and precise questions, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.